your mental health hour. Mind Matters on the Light Breakfast. Consultant psychiatrist Dr. Philip George discussing articles about mental health. All right, let's get to the first article. Research has found that employee mental health not only affects quality of life, but also quality of work, mm. productivity, and also company culture. So in short, mental health support for your staff is an investment that leads to a significant and also long-term payoff. So Dr. Phil, how can employees support employees through these trying times where, where mental health is concerned? You know, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a huge ROI return on investment if companies actually consider not just physical health, but also mental health of the employees. I think big companies already support many employees with their physical health issues. And the purpose is so that they can keep the employees, reduce absenteeism. But from the National Health and Morbidity Survey, we know that about 30% of Malaysian adults have a mental health problem. And a big chunk of that is part of the workforce. Right. So if we're just covering for, you know, maybe the 10% of hypertension, diabetes, and not actually tackling the others, we're still going to have poor outcomes in, you know, in the workplace. So employers can actually help by, one, I think, creating a culture of balanced work life, you know, so the employer themselves can show an example of doing this, you know, spending time with the family, having family day or, you know, exercise with, you know, colleagues and yeah. you know, make that part of the culture of the place that you work in. And then have often communications and, you know, discussions to make everyone feel needed and respected. You know, even the cleaner needs to know that they have a role in the whole place that Correct, they're working. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, build a team approach. There, there are activities that can actually foster teamwork. And, you know, it's, so it's, it's not just salaries and rewards, but sometimes it's also a cohesiveness in the, in the workplace. Yeah, because you want to feel like you're part of a family absolutely course, right? yeah. but sometimes it's also uh, uh, employees not doing their part as well so what yeah. can employees uh, themselves do yeah. to promote good mental health despite all these adversities that's uh, uh, around us you know i i spoke to some of my colleagues uh, gps and cardiologists and they reported actually seeing less patients over the whole mco cmco really? mco yeah and, you know, it could be that maybe patients were fearful about coming to see them in health facilities. Maybe. But according to a friend of mine, a cardiologist, he said that it was largely because people were actually looking after their health now. That they were, you know, having cleaner and healthy diets. They were maybe eating at home yep, more. Yep. And they were exercising more as well. And perhaps they had maybe less work stress. But, you know, how much of that lifestyle do we still maintain and continue now that, you know, things are coming back to a new normal? Yeah. I think employees should be proactive in first identifying their own weaknesses and strengths in terms of their mental health. Do an audit. Don't just look at your physical health and, you know, measure your blood pressure every week, but also look at your mental health. And then identify challenges, you know, if they're related to work, if they're related to home, because they're, you know, they, they influence each other. So look for supports to manage them and, you know, develop buffers, which can include exercise, mindfulness, meditation, breathing exercise. I mean, things that you can actually learn for free. Yeah. So it's a huge investment that you can put into to actually better your quality of life. Yeah. Invest in yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the next article. There's an app called Prozit, uh, which actually includes tracking features like exercise, sleep, mm. call frequency, message histories, and music taste. 
Apparently, because an emotionally charged state can be detected with your typing speed and the right. force that you use, so the app will also ask the users to record a 90-second audio clip to talk about their best and exciting parts of the week, stuff like that. Mm. So the users will be asked to self-report their feelings on a five-point scale. So I'm thinking of downloading this as well, but when it comes to something as complex as mental health, yeah. can something like how fast you type conclusively diagnose someone's mental state? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, this app just got released recently, but there's another app that just got released yesterday in in Australia uh, that does pretty much the same thing. Really? As well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's an app that actually is a holistic thing. It, it explores things like your sleep, your exercise, your how many times you call and connect with people, but it also records your you know personal self report of feelings. And it's just like a rating and screening tool. We use this very often in psychiatry and psychology. So when patients come in, we have a battery of investigations we do. First, we need to rule out a medical condition. Right. And then we have psychological tools, screening tools. Like, you know, you could do the Zoom self-rating depression scale to see if you fit into uh, criteria for depression, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe. Oh. So this is... Of course, not a diagnostic tool. It it cannot take the place of a clinician. Right. So it helps it, to... It just helps to guide the clinician. Okay, maybe this person is having depression. Maybe it's mild. Maybe it's moderate. Right. And then it's a great tool for, you know, monitoring progress. So, you know, you get a score the first time you come and then... After a week on treatment, you check the score again, and then you know, following a month, you see whether you're improving and in recovery. Right. So this is the same thing that Proset's doing as well. I think it's you know adjuvant, it's complementary to all the other you know assessments and treatments that you would need to get. But you know, the other thing that's happening, and I think this is really related to the pandemic and the MCO and everything, is that people are talking more about mental health. People want to access mental health services, but, mm. you know, they don't want to go face to face, drive their car up to a mental health service and, you know, get seen by their neighbor or somebody yeah, yeah. else. So the accessible way, especially for young people, is through apps and through, you know, gadgets and media. And so the more that we create this, the better it is to reach out to the public. Right. But this does not take away the need for actually meeting up with a mental health uh, professional, right? No. All right. No. All right, let's get to the next article. This study used a smartphone information combined with aerial imaging to assess how much vegetation and greenery were in participants' environments over a given week. Now, this was then graphed against emotion ratings to assess how participants' moods changed in response to higher levels of greenery. Mm. Right. So, since, Dr. Phil, we can't be working from a forest, <laughs> how important is it for offices and schools to incorporate greenery into their indoor space? These studies have actually been around for some time, and they all point to that green space exposure actually is correlated with more positive emotional experiences. Right. Um, in fact, having green greenery exposure is just as important as socialization as a protective factor against mental health issues. So it's not about, you know, just maybe exposure on a daily basis, but on a regular basis. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be in your home or in your mm -hmm. office space. Right. 
But, you know, if you're having a lunch break and it's out in a green open area, that may be a much more better option than, you know, sitting in a concrete place. In fact, we know that green space exposure does reduce noise, air pollution, and also improve uh, the immune function. So it actually has to be real greenery. Because in my mind, if if it's true, is there an actual reason why greenery helps? Because I could have a wallpaper of a forest in my room. Would that also improve my health? Yeah, no, in fact, there are some studies that have shown that viewing simulated nature during exercise can actually enhance the same outcomes as well. Right. But uh, maybe not to the same extent. Okay. Um, so, you know, they, they can maybe help you feel more calm. and But actually, environments shape human behavior. And green space availability actually increases physical activity. Right. So, you know, when you see a green space, you've got a park near your house, you know, you think, well, I have to get out there sometime. Right. And I think that's what we've noticed during the MCO. I mean, during the MCO, we were all trapped in the house. And mm. as soon as it was lifted, people who never walked were walking. Yeah. You know, and they're out in the parks. But it doesn't only rely on green space. It's also, also blue space. So Blue space? Yeah. I mean, rivers, lakes, sea. Right. A sense of calm when you just sit out by a sea or go for a walk on the beach. Like it or not, we're all animal matter and we need to go back to nature. Right. You don't have the same sort of effect when you're looking at urban scenes like towers and buildings and looking at them and trying to feel comfort and, you know, calming effect. It doesn't feel the same. So, yeah, it it does have a huge impact on our, you know, on our well-being, these green spaces. All right, our next article deals with insomnia, basically. And insomnia was associated with a significant uh, 2.6-fold increased odds of mental disorder with evidence of significant between steady heterogeneous. Insomnia increases the odds for incident mental disorders. Mm. So what causes mental health issues to manifest with a lack of sleep? Because I'm interested. I don't sleep very well, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I think the first important uh, thing to understand is there are two types of insomnia. There's primary insomnia where you really can't find a cause. And then there's secondary insomnia. And actually, the most common insomnia is secondary insomnia. Okay. So if people report insomnia, it's important to identify, is there another cause for their insomnia? Very often, 40 to 50% is psychiatric cause. And so that will include depression, anxiety. Depression typically has, you know, terminal insomnia. They wake up very early and can't go back to sleep. Right. Uh, anxiety has got initial insomnia and, you know, they can't get into sleep in the beginning. Then you've got medical things like sleep apnea, which is very common and, you know, is perhaps more common in um, maybe those who are a little bit more obese and maybe hypertensive as well. It's an ENT issue. So for... Secondary insomnia, we treat the underlying cause. But in primary insomnia, it is well known that lack of sleep over time will trigger mental disorders like, you know, anxiety and depression. Because sleep has got two phases. It's got the NREM and the REM. Right. You know, non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is stage one to four. And during that phase, it's physical restoration. That's the purpose of sleep. You restore your body. And mental restoration is during REM, our rapid eye movement phase, which is our dream sleep. So if we don't get that NREM and REM, our body is going to collapse. Especially if there's no REM, then we don't have the supports for, you know, preventing mental health problems. Right. 
All right, let's get to our next article. Now, some mental health professionals have suggested that nail biting may be a symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD because the individual is aware of what they're doing, but they just cannot stop. However, mm. uh, though aware of the problem, many nail biters have no wish to stop, which is another issue altogether. So this is something that you can look into if your child's nail biting does not cease or if it continues to worsen over time. But Dr. Phil, what causes a child to nail bite? Can this actually be considered a mental health issue though? Well, children bite their fingernails for many reasons. Even adults do it. I mean, yeah, um, exactly, yeah. But the reasons are typically, you know, maybe boredom or to relieve stress, uh, to pass time, or as a force of habit. It's one of the most common nervous habits in children, similar to nose picking, hair twisting, or teeth grinding. And it tends to run in families. So there may be a genetic factor, or it could be learned behavior. You right. Know? And the jury is still out there about that. But about 30 to 60% of secondary students actually do it. Um, so surely there are not all mentally ill. Yeah. It's not always a mental health issue. If it is uncontrollable, uh, it may be due to very high stress or anxiety. If it is causing bleeding or is self-destructive, then it needs attention by a professional also, if it's only started recently and then escalated quickly or is associated with other mental health symptoms like insomnia or poor appetite or teeth grinding, then we need to seek mental health advice. Okay. But how can we, as parents, help our children overcome this trait, though? Yeah. Well, if it's not self-destructive or just occasional, I think sometimes just ignoring it is the best way to make it go. Ignoring it? Yep. The more we nag or punish... It can lead to a power struggle. And then kids, you know, make it their way of controlling the scene. You know, my parent now is, you know, paying more attention to me when, you know, they don't really have enough time for me. And, you know, I can get them riled up. Right. So, you know, you don't want to play that game. Uh, try distracting, you know, your child or signal and get them, get attention to stop their, right. you know, in a reassuring way. Maybe have that discussion in the beginning. Look, I'm really not happy with your nail biting. It's, you know, it can be dangerous. It, it's, it's not a healthy habit. There are other ways to cope with things. I'm just going to nudge you if you do it. You know, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to shout and yell. Yeah, I just yeah. nudge you. Teach them, you know, also alternatives. You know, because they may be doing this as a way to cope. And, you know, the, you know, the f age old misguided thought that children don't have stress. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Actually, children we now know have just as much stress as adults. But adults know how to manage their stress. Yeah. And children don't. No one's teaching them. No one's telling them how to manage their stress. So I think it's important to maybe focus on teaching some things like relaxation techniques, deep breathing exercises, going out for exercise together. Going out to that greenery, you know, yeah. space and stuff. Also then we'll have a crisis plan. When things don't go well, you know, when they typically are biting their nails, maybe there's something else that you can do to help them through that period as yeah. well. But nothing harsh, no harsh punishments. Yeah, there, right? no, that's actually sometimes going to trigger it to become worse. Right. As usual, Dr. Philip George, brilliant insight into some of these very interesting mental health issues. Thank you for your time.